You go to contest, you pay all this money to go to a contest, you get the entry fee, you pay for your hotel, you pay for your car, and the judges sit there on the line and tell you how poorly you flew. You go to an air show and Nobody and they, knows. That's right. <laughs> they, they pay you to come. They pay for your hotel, your car. The crowd tells you how much they love you. Most of us have been to an air show once or twice in our life and have been awed by the maneuvers performed by the amazing aerobatic pilots who put their aircraft through some incredible maneuvers. We've always wanted to interview an aerobatic pilot, and we hit the jackpot with Vicki Benzik, who flies her extra 300S all over the country, delighting hundreds of thousands of spectators at air shows. She's also an air racer, holding at least one high-speed racing record, and has a beautiful Stearman aircraft while also putting together a P-51. And in addition, she has over 1,300 parachute jumps. Talk about a card-carrying member of the adrenaline zone. But as we've learned through countless episodes, you don't get to stay in the zone very long if you don't know how to manage risk. And Vicky is a virtuoso at that. Many thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Culligan Water. Culligan's drinking water systems deliver the superior filtration and refreshing hydration you need to fuel your high-performance lifestyle. Learn more at Culligan.com. And we caught up with Vicky at home in California. So Vicky, welcome to the Adrenaline Zone. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's really nice to have you. I really look forward to this discussion being a pilot also, although you have quite a very interesting and broad array. And one of the first things we like to do in asking a guest is what sparked your interest in what you do in aviation, aerobags growing up? When did you know that you wanted to pursue this as uh, your sort of life occupation? I don't know exactly, but uh, my uncle took me flying when I was a little kid. I remember it distinctly. It must have been on a holiday because I... We were at my grandma's house in Watsonville, and my uncle took us to the airport. I sat on my dad's lap, and I was so young that I couldn't tell the difference between whether we were flying over Toyland or those are real houses we are. So, <laughs> um, so that was kind of was my first exposure to aviation. And my uncle was a pilot. Uh, he flew a pit special, actually a, a very special pit special. Mm. And he flew an air show, and he was a real air racer, and so he was sort of bigger than life to me. But I never really thought. You know, growing up in middle class, San Jose, that I could be a pilot or that I could do something like that. Until one day, one of my buddies asked me to go skydiving. He was uh, in college, or actually in graduate school at the time. And he came down, we, my lab was in the dungeon. We came downstairs in the basement and asked me if I wanted to go skydiving. And I said yes. And we went out and went skydiving. And I fell in love with being up in the sky. And every moment we got, we'd go out to the drop zone, make jumps, and dive. Just wanted to be up in the air much longer than I could be under a parachute. So I had to learn to fly. And, and the moment I stepped into the airplane, took the control, I knew that that was something that I would do for the rest of my life. Relationships may come and go, but, but the airplanes <laughs> always stayed. <laughs> yeah. So I think, you know, getting a pilot's license, people can look that up. That's, I don't say it's straightforward, but it's pretty well known. But then you make the next step and you go into aerobatics. So how do you train for aerobatics and get proficiency in it? And by the way, you didn't frighten your flight instructor off the bat and start doing loops and stuff, did you? <laughs> well, it turns out he was a, a former military instructor. Oh, okay. And we, I learned to fly in a 1941 telecraft, which is a utility category airplane, which is allowed to do loops and all that sort of thing. And 
And at the time I got my pilot's license, which is over 40 years ago, we had to do spin as part of our training. They discontinued that a while back now. But back when I did it, you had to do spins. And I, I love the spin. So he taught me how to loop and roll the airplane. And so during my private pilot life, whenever I got a chance, I would take it out and loop and roll it. And I think I kind of got used to this whole thing in unusual attitudes and three-dimensional space. Because when you skydive, you know, one of the things you learn to do is, is do somersaults in the air and then recover and be stable. And, and so I had been in the sky in all kinds of orientations. And so being upside down didn't really phase me too much. Just make sure you're strapped in. So after I did my private pilot rating, I went out and did a 10-hour aerobatic course with Amelia Reed at Reed Hillview Airport. And I bought a small airplane. I bought a small airplane like long before I bought a house. <laughs> and so I used to fly that little airplane around and I'd do all kinds of tricks in it. And then uh, one day, somebody who had the same airplane pulled the wings off of the airplane and I decided maybe it wouldn't be a good idea to be doing aerobatics in an airplane that wasn't specially built for aerobatics. Mm. My aerobatics took a backseat while I pursued my career in technology. And it wasn't until many years later that I took a ride with Wayne Hanley, who was a big air show pilot and a trainer to the air show pilot. And he took me up and tumbled the airplane. And I'm like, oh, I got to do this. So at that point, I was in my career where I could afford an aerobatic airplane. I went out and I bought an extra. And I started training in the earnest and competing in the International Aerobatic Club contest. So that's kind of how you learn to do it. And you get some coaching from within the airplane. And then you do contest flying. So you get critiquing from outside of the airplane. You go to these contests, you get scored on the quality of your figure, how straight your lines are, how 45 your 45s are, how round your loops are and all that stuff. And the great thing about program in the International Aerobatic Club is that you start out at a higher level till you build the skills to start coming down in altitude. And so, so like if you, you start out with primary or sportsman, I start out in sportsman, you're at 1,500 feet. And then at intermediate, you're at 1,200 feet. Advanced, you're at 800 feet. And then unlimited, you're at 325 feet. And at some point, I made the transition to air shows because you go to contests, you pay all this money to go to a contest, you have the entry fee, pay for your hotel, you pay for your car. The judges sit there on the line and tell you how poorly you flew. You go to an air show and... Nobody and they, knows. That's right. <laughs> they, they pay you to come. They pay for your hotel, your car. The crowd tells you how much they love you. And so I think uh, I flew my first air show when I was flying at the intermediate level in the contest. And that, that air show was over a winery in the Salinas Valley, and they paid me to keep the wine. So, so we kind of hooked on the air show. Eventually, I transitioned to just doing the air show. And I retired out of the semiconductor industry and just pursued my passion flying. So let's roll the tape back just a little bit. I'm sure, I suspect, when you first started flying as a young woman, you looked around on the tarmac and you saw a bunch of guys, right? Oh, yeah. So how cool was it to actually learn from another woman, Amelia Reed? She's legendary. She, she is a legend, yeah. Was that a kind of like, hey, you know, I can do this kind of thing? Interestingly, when I finished my private pilot rating, I had 40 hours, which is kind of the minimum you need to finish a private pilot rating. And I went out to buy my own airplane and I bought this airplane that out in New Jersey and I live in California. So I hopped on an airline and flew out there to pick it up and fly it back across the country. I had 
with 40 hours. I love it. <laughs> so all my training was in a telecraft and I bought a Luscom. And so I went to Amelia Reed and got training from her in the Luscom. So when I left for that trip, I had all 50 hours. <laughs> By the time I got back, I had 100 hours. But, but all the guides were like, oh, you're going to die. You're going to kill yourself. You know, go my cross country by yourself, girl, young girl. And Amelia was the one who said, no, you can do it. Just do flight plan three hours at a time, fly the three-hour leg, flight plan the next three-hour leg, just one leg at a time, and, and you'll be fine. Stay out of the bad weather, and you'll be Sure fine. enough, I did. And that was a fantastic trip. I met so many great people along the way. And that's the thing about the pilot community, and they, they really look out for each other. I brought my sleeping bag. I camped on the wing of my airplane. I had one airport where with weather coming in. That guy got up really early in the morning to wake me up to tell me where the weather was because back then we didn't have the internet or the weather tools that we have now. So he called flight service and figured out where all the weather was. We just picked it on the map and brought it out to show me so I knew what route to take. Oh, yeah. And then other people let me sleep in the FBO or brought me to their home and fed me. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Incredible. That yeah. sounds like a wonderful trip. Yeah. Yeah. That's great to be. Sounds like something Sandy would do. <laughs> yeah. So before we get too far into our discussion, I do want to ask you about your t-shirt because one of the sponsors for your aerial work is California Aeronautical University. Can you tell us about them and how they support you? So, you know, the air shows are, you, you might guess, it's hard to make it all work financially with a plane and find the air show. Mm -hmm. So uh, California Aeronautical University supports me over the sponsorship. And they are four-year university that the kids get their degrees in three years because they go all year round. And in the first 18 months, they get all their flight ratings through TFII, which is a certified flight instructor for instruments. And then the second 18 months, while they're finishing out their coursework, they are instructing the younger students and they get paid for instruction. So it's a great program. They step out of the university. They already have jobs with the airline. GAU has partnership with a number of airlines, including United Airlines. And so the kids have job offers before they ever matriculate. And they have signing bonuses. And it's just, it's an amazing time to be a pilot right now, especially a young person getting into the industry. And they can move up rather quickly uh, from first officers to captain and then to the major. It's pretty, pretty amazing. Well, while we're on the topic of education, you mentioned you paused to go back to school, I think, and I, I think you've got a PhD in chemistry, correct? I did. I'm just curious <laughs> why you went to chemistry instead of maybe aeronautical. Hey, hey, hey. Well, I was, I was just curious. <laughs> yeah. I, I loved chemistry in high school. I, I was fortunate to go to a high school that had fewer opportunity of chemistry, and, and I loved chemistry. I loved chemistry. Actually, when I started as an undergraduate, I thought I'd want to be a doctor, and I took biology in college and I was like, no, you know, I really like the physical sciences. I like the chemistry and the physics. And so I got my BS degree in chemistry. And then I decided I can't do a lot with a BS degree in chemistry. Kind of need an advanced degree. So I decided to go to grad school and went to grad school in Berkeley and got my PhD in physical chemistry. And it's during that time frame that I learned to fly. Yeah. I mean, funny story. It was really hard. I took a year of Bob Harris with quantum mechanics, which was really hard. Oh, I like quantum mechanics. Yeah. My first degree is in physics. Oh, you know, okay. So until they get to science. Yeah, well, you probably know. I mean, graduate level quantum mechanics is pretty hard. After 
I guess during your second year, you do your oral. And I had just gone through my orals when I learned to skydive. And I think it was on my first recall that I had a malfunction in my parachute and had to pull my, my reserve and, and landed, you know, and I felt so powerful, full of myself that I'd saved my own life. <laughs> kind of made like the PhD oral thing be like, these guys. <laughs> <laughs> you guys have not. I totally get that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I love math and science. And at some point, I did a postdoc up in, in Eugene, Oregon, at the University of Oregon. And then I got hired. I thought I was going to be a professor, but I kept fell in love with Oregon. And I got hired by Tektronix up in Portland. So I could stay up in Oregon. So I worked in their integrated circuits operation in their wafer fab. And then I got... Wafer plant. Yeah. yeah. And then I got hired by a company called Novell Systems. Made the equipment places like Tektronix or Intel or all the others to make factory manufacturers need to make the chip. Anyway, it's during that time frame, I guess I just thought I really wanted to be an astronaut. It was fun. I recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't want to be a Navy pilot? Come on. <laughs> no, well, I was too old by then. Um, so I went down to Houston, did the week-long interview, and I was in the, you know how they do the flexion, right? They grew groups of 20. So in my year, they did six groups of 20. I was in the first group of 20. And I was one of three women, one of, I think, only five civilians and only maybe three PhDs. What year was that? 97. Wow, it was the same. I was selected in the 96 class. Really? We were interviewing for the class after I mine. I interviewing the class after you. I have a vision defect that I never knew I had. So at the end of the week, I got told that I couldn't pass the flight school because of a vision defect. So let me get this straight. You can do aerobatics all the way down to the surface, but you can't be an astronaut. <laughs> How many hundred miles into space? Oh, Emma. Well, you know, Nikki, I am so sorry. <laughs> yeah, but, oh. but think about this. Like you're ma manipulating the Hubble telescope and the cargo bay of the shuttle and you like jam it into the back wall. And, and they're like, oh, who hired her? <laughs> she has defective depth perception. That doesn't interfere with your aerobatics line at all. No, because judge depth involves more than just how your eyes point, which is what my vision defect is. It involved how you eat your head, light and dark, size. So I specifically couldn't pass the Gerhoff test, if you remember what that is. Uh, yeah. yeah. <sighs> they put it up there and I was like, which one is more than which one's back? I'm like, uh, right? <laughs> one on the right. <laughs> so, Vicki, uh, you fly a whole bunch of different airplanes. I do. Let's pick one, the extra 300L, which has a, what, 400 degree per second roll rate. Right. Can handle 10 Gs. <laughs> now, I've handled a lot of Gs, but never 10 Gs. What's it like maneuvering that airplane? And what does it take to handle those high G forces? Well, it's a lot of practice, mainly for the negative Gs. The positive Gs, not so much. You get G'd up pretty quickly. I have a single seat. Because it has so much power, it makes up for... You know, I fly the steerman too. Makes up for not perfect flight. <laughs> you get away with a lot because you have a lot of extra energy. You don't have to do the energy management so well, or well because it rolls so well. You really don't have to use the rudder in the roll. You can just do stick all the way over, and it'll roll just on a, like on a line. So obviously, the stopping on the roll is on point. It's challenging. So I did all my contest flying pretty much in the extra, and I used to train with. 
Elena Klumovich, one of the Russian coaches, and she'd get up there, you know, and we'd have to do like maybe on a down line eight point bowls when we had stop on eight. And I would over rotate them and stuff. And she would just get so frustrated, like, stop faster. Stop faster. Stop faster. Yeah. Stop faster. Yeah. <laughs> what? Wow. You know, the thick horses are very light. So getting it, getting the aileron centered, it's easy to over rotate. So it's easy to bobble the stop. You flip it over and you maybe like do this and then you do this. And it's very obvious to the judges. So you have to learn to just take what you got and not fix it. <laughs> Just very briefly, how many negative Gs are you typically pulling in an aerobatic demonstration? Really quite the extra much anymore in air shows. I think the last air show I flew in it, I did one last year, I guess, but I typically don't offer it as an air show or plane anymore, mainly because it is a lot of Gs and it takes a lot of practice to stay to G tolerance and it's hard to do two air show or plane that requires so much training. But Typically, I would hit 10 Gs on the positive, and I would peg it on the negative, which is my G meter goes to minus five. So I don't know exactly how much, probably wasn't a whole lot more than minus five. But yeah, if you want it to look good, you have to use a lot of Gs to make the corners be sharp. The snap, yeah. yeah. Water is the ultimate health drink, and it's not just about water that's good enough. You deserve water you love. With Culligan's filtration systems, you'll get the superior quality and pure-tasting, ultra-refreshing hydration you can count on to power your performance. Their smart reverse osmosis systems take it to the next level, helping you set hydration goals, track how much you're drinking, and even see what contaminants are reduced in your water, so you know you're always getting the exceptional water you need to truly feel good inside and out ready to face the day and whatever challenges it brings. Learn more at Culligan.com. Subreport related, what exactly is a surface level aerobatic waiver? And oh, how do you get one? Okay. And when do you need one? Well, to do demonstrations down to the surface, you have to have one. So the way the program works is you start out at 800 feet. So you can only go down to eight, with your aerobatics down to 800 feet in front of the one in wavered airspace typically in front of an audience. And you have to do so many shows at 800 feet, then you can go down to 500 feet. You have to do so many shows, so many performances at so many different venues, and then you can go down to 250 feet. So many performances at so many different venues that you go down to the surface. Wow. It usually takes, I don't know, depends on how many shows you can book during a year, but it might take you three or four years to get to the surface from starting out at 800 feet. And that's, of course, if you're competent, you have to pass the aerobatic competency evaluation every year. It's kind of a self-regulated industry. International Council of the Air Show has a, what they call aerobatic competency evaluators. I'm an aerobatic competency evaluator. And each person who has a waiver to do aerobatics lower in waiver airspace has to do the evaluation every year in front of an aerobatic competency evaluator. Is the international aerobatic community very large? No, it's not really. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the International Aerobatic Club itself has about 4,000 members. And of those 4,000 members, I'm not sure how many are active contest pilots. But I would guess, if I were to just guess, it would be 300 
Five, yeah, 510% or so? Yeah, because even national, the nationals, they get less than a hundred pilots usually per year from the national. Huh. For the professional air show pilot, I don't know how many pilots have a waiver, but it's certainly under 200. Between, Paul, actually between 100 and 200 pilots. Small, small community. It is a very small community. Yeah. So what is your, uh, I got two questions. What is your favorite aerobatic maneuver to do? And what is the most difficult aerobatic maneuver to do? And maybe they're the same for all I know. Oh, boy. I didn't know. That's a good, good question. I have always liked loops. They're just simple figures, but they're very elegant and fun to fly because you look out, you know, looking up and down, you see the ground. They're just a beautiful figure. I think one of the hardest figures to fly is also a very simple figure, which is the hammerhead. The hammerhead, if you don't do it right, can result in an inverted flap spin. So it could be a dangerous maneuver in the, the stirmer, which I fly regularly in air shows. It doesn't have a huge upline before it runs out of energy. And if I let it get too slow, the engine will torque. And you want to keep the airplane in the plane for the hammerhead, but the engine will torque it off. Yeah, so I think that's probably of all the figures in my sequence for the German, that's maybe the most challenging one is the hammerhead. But of course, it's the loops that can kill you at the surface because if you misjudge the more you don't have enough energy at the bottom enough altitude at the top you're going to hit the ground <laughs> that, that, that's a bad place to be and the reverse half cubans do the same thing so in my german airship sequence i have one loop and two reverse half cubans when it comes to the ground you can only tie the record right yeah you can only tie the record <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you you know you mentioned inverted flat spins but you have an aviation world record for inverted flat spins. no no so, me <laughs> no? not me okay i thought i thought i read that somewhere <laughs> no that's uh oh, well okay. uh, i think Spencer suderman has that record uh, yeah and wayne yanley had it before him i have a record for being the fastest woman at reno Oh, that's a good, that's a better, that's a better record. <laughs> so your record is pretty impressive. It was what, 469 miles per hour or something like that. Yep. How does the, uh, uh, we're sort of switching gears, but how does that air racing sport actually work? Because not a lot of our listeners may be familiar with that. And then uh, what kind of airplane do you race in? Okay. Uh, well, it's close course air racing, of which we have the last three air racing camera, but it was the only venue in the world for close course air racing. We raced eight planes at a time around pylons in a eight point something mile course, which takes, depending on the speed of the airplane, if you're going 470 miles an hour around a minute, if you're going about, oh. if you're going about 300 miles an hour, maybe a minute 20 and 25, something like that. Short but fast race. Yeah. Yeah. We, <laughs> With a bunch of your buddies wanting to pass you. <laughs> so the way the racing works is we all take off in order at speed. So we qualify, qualify on the course to get a speed. And then we all take off in order of speed and we join up on a pace plane. And so there'll be a pace plane and then there'll be eight planes going out from the pace plane. And then we all come down onto the race course, about 30 degree angle into the first pylon, which is pylon four. And if the pace plane sets it up right, you're making just a slight turn in, which helps to spread the field a little bit. 
And generally, that we call this the chute. The chute is generally not a good place to pass because it's dangerous. But then we pulled around the course and we applied six laps. And then we check our flag and we all come off the race course, going to full down and go down way and land. So I've been racing at Reno since 2010. I started racing at Sport Class in a Glass Air 3 and then later a Lancer Legacy. And, and I've raced every year in Sport Class. In 2013, I started racing Jets. In 2015, I set the record at the Pass of Woolen on the race course. And then this last year, I raced um, uh, P51 up on the race course. I ended up in fourth place. Are the Jets all the same? Or I would think there are performance differences, or is it strictly pilot capability that, that wins this thing? No, there are performance differences. So there are different Jets. I mean, there's rules as to what jets can be on the race course. They can't be swept playing. They can't have an afterburner in it. There's a bunch of rules. A large fraction of the jets are either L29s or L39s. You know what they are? Yep. Those are Russian. The best way to make them faster because you're accelerating because you're going around in a circle. So the weight really matters. So a lot of them take pretty much everything out of the jet to make it as light as possible. And then you turn up the chill control on the engine, they, they can run a PM on the engine. So that's kind of how they spread out. They also re-engine some of the jets, a little bigger engine. Big money. In a large part, it's, it's who wins with who brought what, especially who brought what that year. And it costs a lot of money to win, to bring something that will rate engine, especially the unlimited. Those rates engines, I think, are to be half a million bucks. Oof. But then if they're close, pilot skill, of course, matters. So you mentioned that you've raced in your P-51. What else are you, and we talked about the fact that you're refurbing it at the moment. So what else do you have planned for that airplane? Oh, I'm going to plan to do air shows. So it's, an, it's actually a very famous P-51. It was owned by Clay Lacey, and he campaigned it at Reno from 1964 to 1972. It's in a purple livery, which is unusual for a P-51. The story behind the poop bowl is that the airplane was purchased to race in 1964 by Al Paulson, who was the founder of Goldstream. And he was Clay's friend. And at the time, Al had this fleet of constellations that he was going to do an airline between Benai and Hawaii. And he was going to call it Orchid Airlines. And his wife said, hey, can I do this Orchid Airlines? You ought to paint a purple stripe on the side of the airline. So... He ordered 150 gallon poopal paint and it was custom quoted poopal paint. And they received 1,500 gallons of purple paint. And so the toolboxes and the ladders and the Mustang all got painted purple. <laughs> but it became a very iconic airplane. So it was really well known among the race fans and also Clay brought it to a lot of air shows. It became really popular with young people at the time. I bought it. In 2019, and I flew it for about 25 hours. I took to Reno in 2019 just to put on that play. And then after Reno, I took it down to Fighter Lee Builders to be restored, and, and we repainted it in the purple livery. Then I brought it to Reno this year, and the response from the fans was just overwhelming. Overwhelming. Oh, nice. People brought pictures of themselves standing by that airplane when they were little kids, standing under the wing. Oh my gosh. It has its own fan club. It has such a following. I just hope that putting it on the air show circuit in the future 
will inspire the next generation the same way that it did for this generation of people and pilots. That's a great story. Yeah, the one lady went out to orchard and brought us a, I named the plant, the plane Plum Crazy. So she went out to her orchard and bought a, a bushel of plums. You brought them in for a separation. <laughs> Don't eat too many of those. So you and your uh, steersman are movie stars and TV stars. We are. What exactly did that involve? Tell us about that. Well, the steersman, I've done a couple of projects with steersman. I did the Mercury 13, the Netflix film, the one about the would-be astronaut, I guess the gals that went through the, the whole flight people program back in the day for the Mercury program. Through that, I got to meet Wally Funk, which is pretty cool because she flew a steersman. And so... I was basically the stunt double for Wally in, in that movie. And that film led to a number of other projects that used both the steersman and also we have a tenure. So the aerial coordinator that was on Mercury 13 has brought me out for a couple of other things. And we were on NCIS LA. Last spring, I took the tenure out to Texas to do an episode of Walker, Texas Ranger, which was kind of funny because it was at this private airfield, and the runway was literally like two feet wider than the Kinger landing gear <laughs> on each Yikes. side, and it was it was wet, so I couldn't get off of the pavement, and there was no place. And they wanted me to go up and down the runway, and there was no place really to turn around. And the taxiways were very narrow, and I'd have to have somebody guide me on the taxiway, so I kept the wheels in the right spot to clear the trees and the edge. But I figured out that the Kinger's got removed. Shut up. Back it up. You need to turn. Turn. Three point turn in an airplane. Yeah. You need to get the the purple P 51 into a movie somewhere. That would be good. Well, it was on an episode of Magnum PI. Oh, wow. Yeah. Of course. (laughs) Back in the day. Yeah, I'd like to go back to something you said earlier. You talk about parachute jumps. I actually did one just to, you know, if we ever had to eject out of a T-38 to figure out what that would would be like. But you've got over 1,300 parachute jumps. Do you still do that? Because that clearly is a a huge interest of yours. Or was there, did you perform there too? Or Yeah, it's always been an interest. For a while, it was kind of keeping pace with the number of flight hours I had, with the number of jumps, but then the flight hours took off. You jump through the year. I haven't jumped since the pandemic and I put a little weight on. So I had bought a new parachute <laughs> with the idea that I'm going to jump. I've been busy with air shows. So now I have a new parachute and I'm going to go jump in this fall. I really do miss it. It was quite the sense of freedom, actually. I totally get why you liked it. Yeah, I loved it. Ultimately, I got really busy with my career and something had to give. So I kept flying, but the number of jumps I made per year was large. But yeah, still don't jump any. I will not jump any. You have overcome any obstacles that might have been related to the fact that you're a woman pilot. Crashed through those. But what were some of those challenges, particularly when you were younger? We talked about that a little bit earlier. But did you feel there were a lot of barriers you really had to overcome? Or did you just get in your airplane and do it better than anybody else? It's me, but the guys like having women around. I mean... How boring it is to all be bunch of guys, right? <laughs> I I didn't really feel like I was unwanted. There weren't very many women. Like on the radio, you hardly ever heard a woman's voice when I first started flying. 
but there's more and more now, which is wonderful. Sometimes, like in the racing, <laughs> the guys like to race with you. They just don't want to be beat by you. They get beat by the girl, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, you got to get over that. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I never really thought of myself as not one of the guys until one day it came out that one of the guys was teasing the other guy because he kept losing to me. And then I subsequently, that guy, so that was kind of good. Good for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, good for you. But it, it kind of hurt my feelings because I guess I just never really thought about myself as being not one of the guys. I don't know that it, there were obstacles that I had to kind of overcome in that respect. I will say that career-wise, when I was young, I thought that you had to decide between having a family and having a career. Getting a PhD, having a career in industry, I just really didn't see that that I could do both. There weren't any examples of people doing both. And nowadays, you see examples of that. You see like Marissa Mayer, who's out in Geo, has a family, and like, wow, that's really cool. I wish I had had role models when I was younger of women who did it all because I did miss out on a part of the life that maybe I could have had. But then again, maybe I wouldn't have done so many things in my lifetime had I had a family. Along that line, what advice would you give young girls who are interested in becoming pilots and doing some of the things that you've done? You can have it all. Absolutely. You don't have to make those choices, but you can have it all. And, and I think companies and airlines and military, all of, all of organizations have really come to realize that women need to have the time to have a family life and be able to participate in a career. And, and gosh, if they don't, those organizations are missing out on like half of humanity. In the military, this was not only the right thing for us to do, we had to do it because it vastly increased our recruiting pool, both on the officer and the enlisted side. So yeah, you'd like to think it was all, all virtuous, but it was partly necessity. Absolutely. So Vic, where do you see the future of aerobatic flight going in the next five or 10 years? Are there any changes coming down the, the line? Uh, anything new that's out there that's going to delight audiences at air shows that we haven't seen before? Gosh, that's a, that's a really good question. I think the air shows are really wonderful and it's great to see more and more women participating in the air show. The mm -hmm. military is, is a big component of that. So we're seeing more and more women as demo pilots at the air show. Yeah, we have our first uh, female Blue Angel solo pilot. Yeah, yeah. it's awesome. Yeah, we have uh, Bayo, Major Bayo Wolf, is the F-35 demo pilot, and Rebel Wilson <laughs> is the F-16 demo pilot. They're both women, and, and they just tear up the sky. And I think it's just, it's such a great role model for the young women out there. So I think, you know, it's exciting to see, to see that come about. I think that's a huge contribution to young women in general. I hope to see more participation in more diverse pilot group too. I think that would also be a big thing for the air show to embrace. Yeah, as far as aircraft, I, I don't know. I couldn't tell you. I mean, there's always new aerobatic aircraft that come out. Well, Vicki, this has been a fantastic conversation. I've really been looking forward to this, to be honest with you. We had to wait till the Reno air races were over and everybody came off their cruises and, and did all that. And it's really cool to talk to somebody who gets to have so much fun every day. <laughs> yeah. Well, you kind of have to make that for yourself, right? <laughs> well, 
Be safe out there. Enjoy your new P-51 when it comes back all decked out in its purple livery. Thank you. And we'll be looking for you on the air show. Yep. I'll be out there. (laughs) All right. Thanks a lot. Okay. Thank you, guys. That was aerobatic pilot, air racer, and all-around amazing pilot, Vicki Benzing. I'm Sandra Magnus. And I'm Sandy Winnefeld. Thanks again to Culligan Water for sponsoring this episode. Your life is about taking risks. Your water shouldn't be. Learn more at Culligan.com. Please pass our podcast around to your friends, and we'll see you next week with another fun and interesting episode of The Adrenaline Zone.